Welcome to the MacArthur Memorial Podcast. Located in Norfolk, Virginia, the MacArthur Memorial is a museum and research center dedicated to the life and legacy of General of the Army Douglas MacArthur. The memorial is also dedicated to preserving and presenting the story of the millions of men and women who served with General MacArthur. Each month, the staff of the memorial will use this podcast to explore topics relating to General MacArthur and his times. Between 1905 and 1906, a 25-year-old Lieutenant Douglas MacArthur traveled through Asia with his father, Lieutenant General Arthur MacArthur, and his mother, Mary Hardy MacArthur. Over a period of nine months, he traveled 19,949 miles from Japan to Calcutta, across the plains of India to the Khyber Pass in Afghanistan, and south to what is now Sri Lanka, Indonesia, and Vietnam. He then traveled through China before returning to Japan. Decades later, MacArthur wrote, I visited countless lands so rich in color, so fabled in legend, so vital to history, that the experience was, without a doubt, the most important fact of preparation in my entire life. For the rest of his life and the remaining 45 years of his military career, this journey would inform his thoughts about the political, military, and economic potential of Asia. This fundamental knowledge would pay massive dividends, guiding and inspiring many of the major decisions he would later make as a senior leader in the region. The origins of Douglas MacArthur's grand tour of Asia lie with his father, Lieutenant General Arthur MacArthur. For most of his adult life, Arthur MacArthur had been fascinated by Asia. For decades, he had devoured every volume published on East Asia, and in the final decade of his career, his personal interest in the region intersected with his professional responsibilities. His service in the Philippines from 1898 to 1901, a period which included the Spanish-American War, the Philippine Insurrection, and his tenure as military governor of the Philippines, only heightened his interest in Asia. In 1902, he was stationed in San Francisco as commander of the Department of the Pacific. As such, part of Arthur MacArthur's responsibility was the defense of Hawaii. He was convinced that decades in the future, the United States would be involved in a war against Germany and or Japan, and he firmly believed that Hawaii would be attacked first if a war started in the Pacific. As a scholar, he had always found Asia an interesting, dynamic place. Now reading of an increasingly modern and aggressive Japan, and sensing that a war with Japan might someday be a reality, he was even more convinced that Asia would play an increasingly important role in international affairs. From his perspective, for the U.S. military to ignore this emerging reality was to invite future destruction. At his post in San Francisco, Arthur studiously watched events unfolding in Asia. He didn't have long to wait for a major development. In February 1904, the Russo-Japanese War broke out. The world waited expectantly for a Russian victory, but Arthur confidently predicted a Japanese victory. By all accounts, the Russo-Japanese War was a favorite topic of conversation among the MacArthur family, which was enjoying a reunion of sorts in San Francisco. By 1904, both of his sons, Naval Lieutenant Arthur MacArthur II and Army Lieutenant Douglas MacArthur, were conveniently stationed in San Francisco. As Douglas MacArthur would later indicate, his father had an incredible influence on not just his concept of command and leadership, but on his entire worldview. It is not hard to imagine the foundation of Douglas MacArthur's strategic thinking about Asia 
being molded during the fall of 1904 by his father's intense interest in the Russo-Japanese War. As the war progressed through 1904, it was clear that Arthur's predictions about Japan were becoming a reality. Not content to just read and talk about the war, however, Arthur was determined to witness the dramatic events unfolding in Asia. He petitioned the War Department for assignment to Japan as a military observer, writing, My purpose would be to witness some general engagement. I don't know that I could present a report of very much practical value, as the only special qualification I can claim for the work is exceptional appreciation of the importance of the subject. It was a vague sort of request, but it worked. William Howard Taft, future President of the United States, but at the time Secretary of War, approved of Arthur's request. It was common knowledge that Taft and Arthur MacArthur had a tense relationship, but Taft was happy to consent to the General's request, sensing it as the perfect opportunity to neutralize a troublesome General. At home, Arthur had become a political liability for Taft and the administration of President Theodore Roosevelt. Because of his beliefs about a future war against Japan or Germany, as well as his disagreements with Taft over the Philippines. Having him volunteer to travel thousands of miles away from the United States seemed like a perfect solution to Taft. And there was already a precedent for dealing with a potentially troublesome general in this way. In 1902, Secretary of War Elihu Root had sent Lieutenant General Nelson Miles on a world tour to get him away from Washington, D.C. There was just one problem with Arthur's request. The War Department had already appointed five official military observers to Tokyo, including Major Peyton March and Captain John J. Pershing. Undeterred, Taft approached the Japanese to see if they would be agreeable to having General Arthur MacArthur observe the war in Manchuria. The Japanese were instantly receptive, and it was made clear that many Japanese officers wished the honor of meeting the famous general of the Spanish-American and Philippine-American wars. Arthur immediately accepted the offer. He was the second-ranking general in the army. In another political climate, he would have risen to become army chief of staff. But in the political climate of 1905, he was an outsider. His chances of becoming chief of staff were dim at best, and so he threw his energies into his visit to Asia, determined to come back with a comprehensive understanding of the economic and military potential of Asia. On February 14, 1905, Arthur and his wife Mary Pinky MacArthur boarded the SS Korea bound for Yokohama, Japan. En route, they met and formed a friendship with newlyweds Captain John J. Pershing and his bride Frances, who were also bound for Japan. Finally, after 20 days of travel, the MacArthurs arrived at Yokohama, and from there made their way to Tokyo. While seen as a political liability by Taft and Roosevelt, in Japan, Arthur was highly respected by the Japanese high command. He was celebrated wherever he went, and when he left Mrs. MacArthur in Tokyo to travel to the battlefields of the war, he was given every assistance by the Japanese high command. Where other foreign observers of the Russo-Japanese War were met with delay and red tape, Arthur received preferential treatment and was given permission to travel where he wished, everywhere observing Japanese maneuvers and being welcomed as the honored guest of Japanese commanders. Captain John J. Pershing was one of the officers selected to travel as part of MacArthur's small delegation and everywhere the group went they were given the best quarters and even provided with special attendants who cooked western-style meals for them. The only times that Arthur was denied access to the front lines 
was when his Japanese hosts feared that the situation at the front was too fluid for them to be able to guarantee his safety. Overall, the trip was a success, and his observations, particularly about the Hotchkiss machine gun in action, were circulated by the U.S. Army's chief of military intelligence. After six months of observations, Arthur returned to Tokyo and was reunited with his wife. In Tokyo, he found his nemesis, William Howard Taft, waiting for him. Anxious to keep Arthur abroad, but also interested in preventing him from making a side trip to the Philippines, where he might derail Taft's carefully constructed image as the savior of the Philippines, Taft encouraged Arthur to go on a grand tour of Asia. To sweeten the deal, he even offered to have young Lieutenant Douglas MacArthur assigned as the general's aide for the trip. Arthur agreed, and the orders went out. Months later, on October 29, 1905, Douglas was reunited with his parents at the Oriental Hotel in Yokohama. Mrs. MacArthur had elected to travel with her husband and son, and after some careful preparations, the MacArthur party began their grand tour of Asia. The trip would take them from Yokohama to Karachi and Kabul via Calcutta. The return trip would take them to Hyderabad and then southwest to what was then Ceylon, the Dutch East Indies, Siam, and French Indochina. Today, Sri Lanka, Indonesia, Thailand, and Vietnam, respectively. They would also visit China on their way back to Japan. In preparation for the trip, one of Douglas's duties had been to buy books about each of their destinations and the regions they would travel through. For the duration of the trip, every night Douglas and his father would discuss their readings. By the end of the trip, both father and son had read dozens of books and accumulated a great library on Asia. At the start of the journey in Japan, the party visited Japanese military bases at Kyoto, Kobe, and Nagasaki. It was during this time that Douglas gained a great appreciation of the reverence of the Japanese people for the emperor, as well as the boldness and courage of the Japanese soldier. This would leave an indelible impression on him, and what he had learned would be practically applied in his conduct of the occupation of Japan forty years later. While in Japan, Douglas was also introduced to Generals Oyama, Kuroki, and Nogi, as well as to Admiral Togo. He later described them as grim, taciturn, aloof men of iron character and unshakable purpose. In his mid twenties, he already had a great respect for the Japanese soldier. From Japan on November seventh, the MacArthur set sail for Singapore, stopping for brief visits along the way in Shanghai and Hong Kong. In Singapore, Douglas and his father met the British governor and inspected several British garrisons in Singapore and the Malay Peninsula. Five days later, the family boarded another ship bound for the Dutch East Indies, modern-day Indonesia. For the next three weeks, the family traveled twelve hundred miles via rail and carriage east from Jakarta to Surabaya. They were soon a month behind schedule, a factor which Arthur MacArthur blamed on tropical heat and irregular connections. Despite these delays, their time in Indonesia was productive. They stopped at a dozen military installations, observing, asking questions, reading, and constantly trying to put what they had seen into a global context. Finally, on December twenty-third, they returned to Singapore. Their sojourn there was brief, however. The day after Christmas, they sailed for Rangoon, today the city of Yangon in Myanmar. Leaving Rangoon, they arrived in Calcutta, India, on January fourteenth, nineteen o six. In Calcutta, Douglas was present as his father spoke to both General Kitchener and Lord Curzon, the Viceroy of India, getting both sides of the Kitchener-Curzon feud, a jurisdictional dispute between a military commander and his civilian counterpart.
According to biographer D. Clayton James, young Douglas acquired from the Kitchener-MacArthur talks a disdain and contempt for civilian officials who interfered in what he considered military matters. This experience would have an impact on his future career. From Calcutta, the MacArthurs traveled north to the Himalayas and the British outposts at Darjeeling. From there, they went west, traveling by rail across the Indo-Gangetic Plain, inspecting British posts along the way, until they reached the mountains of northwest India. In this region, they toured bases around Peshawar, now in northern Pakistan, and the Khyber Pass, a rugged mountain pass that today connects Pakistan and Afghanistan. In his usual colorful prose, Douglas wrote in his autobiography of traversing the path to Afghanistan with the king of the Khyber, Sir Bindon Blood, a veteran of the Anglo-Zulu War, the Second Anglo-Afghan War, and the reliever of the 1896 siege at Malakand. As he admired men like his father, a decorated veteran of the American Civil War, and Theodore Roosevelt, the Rough Rider, in Sir Bindon Blood, young Douglas saw a hero he wanted to emulate. Journeying south, the MacArthurs then visited Karachi, Bombay, which is modern-day Mumbai, Hyderabad, Bangalore, and Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka. After weeks and weeks of travel, they returned to Singapore in March of 1906. Two weeks later, they set sail for Bangkok, Siam, today modern-day Thailand. At the time, Siam was an independent kingdom, and the MacArthurs were welcomed upon their arrival by Siam's Minister of Foreign Affairs. The very next day, as a mark of favor, Arthur MacArthur was received by Chulalongkorn, the king of Siam. Chulalongkorn was the son of Siamese king Mongkut, the namesake of Margaret Langdon's famous book, Anna and the King of Siam, and the title character played by Yul Brenner in the Hollywood production, The King and I. Just as in other lands, the MacArthurs were treated as honored guests and given access to military bases across the country. There were still ample opportunities to socialize, however. Within a week of his arrival, Arthur MacArthur was honored by Chula Longcorn with a state dinner at the palace. Douglas and his mother were also invited to this grand dinner, and during the meal, the electric light suddenly went out. The quick-thinking Douglas identified the problem as a burned-out fuse, replaced the fuse, and the dinner was salvaged. The delighted king offered to decorate the young officer, but Douglas modestly declined. Later at the dinner, the king offered to take the MacArthurs on a tour of the palace. Cora Lee King, the wife of the U.S. minister in Siam, recorded what happened next. Passing through the throne room, Mrs. MacArthur said to the king, Oh, I should like to see you on your throne. He, entering into the joke of the thing, situated himself on the royal throne, and when we entered the room, there he was, smiling at Mrs. MacArthur, who in turn was making long bows to him. Mrs. MacArthur seemed utterly unconscious of having done anything out of the ordinary, and later took the king's arm as though it were the only thing to do where no one ever does it. Mrs. MacArthur may have scandalized the wives of the diplomats, but Chula Longcorn apparently found her delightful and permitted the familiarity. On April the 7th, the MacArthurs departed for Saigon in French Indochina, modern-day Vietnam, to visit the French military headquarters there. After a short visit, they continued north to Canton in southern China. In Canton, they boarded a train that took them into the interior of South China, all the way to the Yangtze River. By boat, they then traveled on the Yangtze to Shanghai. As they made their way north, they visited Tsingtao and the German military installations there, before making brief stops in Tianjin and Peking, cities made famous five years earlier by the Boxer Rebellion, and then Hankow and Wuhan. 
Finding themselves in the south once again along the Yangtze, they once again traveled to Shanghai along the river. The travelers finally arrived in Yokohama on June 22, 1906. It was time to return to the United States, but the next ship would not leave Yokohama for another month. Complete strangers to wasting time or excessive leisure, during this time Arthur and Douglas once again met with Japanese military commanders. They also had time to decompress and talk about what they had seen over the previous nine months. Arthur MacArthur spent a great deal of time working on a paper for the War Department, in which he pressed for greater defenses for the Philippines by stressing the rising power of Japan in the region. Without such defenses, he warned that the Philippines would prove to be a liability for the United States in a future war against Japan. Clearly, Douglas was very influenced by his father's findings, and he wrote years later that it was crystal clear to him that the future and indeed the very existence of America was irrevocably intertwined with Asia and its island outposts. According to Douglas, on the trip they had sat in the charmed circles of the chancelleries of the strong and the weak. Kings, viceroys, and high commissioners had laid bare their hopes and fears to the MacArthur family, but they had seen more than that too. What struck young Douglas about the entire experience, besides the shaping of his general understanding of Asia, was the people and their potential fate. In Douglas MacArthur's own words, we saw the strength and the weakness of the colonial system, how it brought law and order but failed to develop the masses along the essential lines of education and political economy. We rubbed elbows with millions of the underprivileged who knew nothing of the difference between the systems of the free world and the slave world. Here lived almost half the population of the world, and probably half of the raw products to sustain future generations. At a time when race was so prevalent in discussions of government, military success, and the colonial system, in 1905 and 1906, a young Douglas MacArthur took. Race out of the equation and envisioned Asia as a future epicenter of world affairs. Forty years later, the lessons he had learned on this grand tour of Asia would serve him in the occupation of Japan, and he would conduct the occupation in the belief that the Japanese people should be treated with the dignity of equality rather than the shame of subjugation. In his mind, the fate of the everyday man and woman in Asia, combined with their political freedom and quality of living, would shape the future of Asia. And whatever shape that took would have an impact on the United States. Addressing a joint session of Congress in 1951, MacArthur urged his listeners to focus on Asia, imploring them, "Don't scuttle the Pacific." Thank you for listening. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please feel free to contact Amanda Williams at Amanda. dot williams at norfolk dot gov